0: What about, like, the sex talk? Did you guys have that together
1: with your Uh, kids, or did
0: you... Uh,
2: I I would say, like, uh,
1: yeah. Yeah, and that's... Having that conversation with your mother (laughs) is probably going to be awkward (laughs) for everyone, so I'm going to have to lean on Ian for that.
0: Welcome to How To. I'm Charles Duhigg. This is the second episode in our three-part series, Cheat Sheet, which is designed to help listeners navigate this really weird back-to-school period that we're all living through. Last week, we talked about how to manage screen time when so many students are doing remote learning. Today, we're talking with two parents who are worried about one particular aspect of being online, what their teenage son is learning about sex and relationships on the Internet. This was something they were thinking about even before the pandemic started. Ian and Heather are both working parents in Ontario, Canada, with a 10-year-old daughter and a 13-year-old son named Henry.
1: Henry is a great kid. He's very curious. Um, He spends a lot of time online, though, especially now, um, but generally like a good kid. And we really want to make sure he stays a good kid.
0: According to his parents, Henry does really well in school. He, He has a solid group of friends and he plays on the hockey team. But lately, he's started talking more with girls, which, of course, is totally natural for a teenage boy. But he's saying these things that seem to his parents more mature than he is. Like, he talks about being stuck in the friend zone with this girl that he likes, or, or a few other things that have given them pause.
1: He's said some things that I think he's either picked up online or in locker rooms or at school. And the first time it happened, he, we were going for a family walk, And he said, you know, mom, like any man can have his career ruined if a woman just makes up an allegation of sexual abuse and they would lose everything. And I said, whoa, 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 whoa. It doesn't really work like that. Um, And then there was another conversation that uh, we had. Well, he started to sing a song about being something he picked up again on the internet about being a simp. And I ended up Googling it. And it essentially means to be someone who is nice to a girl, pays for things, but doesn't get anything physical uh, in return. And that was a huge, like,
2: red flag for me. You're a simp, you're a simp when you pay for all the clothes. And then she says, thank you, bro, you're a simp. You're a simp, you're a simp, you're a simp, you're a simp. No, you've never been a pimp, you're a
0: simp. You're it's a not unusual simp, for a 13-year-old boy to rebel range, through music range, that bugs his parents. Range, range, but what happens when that gets mixed in with all the other stuff that they see online about how to be popular, or how to talk to girls? How do you protect your son, or, or how do you help them put everything in the right context?
2: You know, when you look at that big, bad internet, um, there's just so much available to you, and it's so easy to to find um, and, it you know, yeah. and it's so easy for for it to find you, too.
1: And he has friends who have access to the Internet and teammates who have access to the Internet. So even if you can control what he finds, there are more things coming into the conversation that he might be having offline with friends.
0: In your darkest moments, when you think about like your extreme concerns around around raising a son in an age where toxic masculinity seems to be something that is constantly written about and talked about. What's the nightmare scenario for you?
1: The first case scenario for, for me was um, uh, the Toronto van attack, 2018, when uh, a young man purposely drove his, his van um, into pedestrians targeting women. And that was the first time that I had heard the term incel.
3: As police search for a motive, one possible explanation is circulating online, suggesting Manassian was angry over being rebuffed by
0: women. Incel is short for involuntary celibate. It's someone who feels spurned by women in society. And some discussions on incel forums online, they can be pretty disturbing. They're often about resentment and misogyny. Some even advocate violence.
1: You find a, a community that feels aggrieved, and then it and it builds until someone who is probably probably mentally unstable to begin with, but then they take some kind of action, and that was really scary um, to think that the same internet that my son has access to um, could inspire somebody to take that kind of violent action.
0: And obviously, that's an extreme scenario, but. Still, a lot of parents worry the values we've tried to instill in our kids have a tough time competing with what they see online. Teenagers have to assert their independence, of course, and we want our kids to be exposed to new ideas. But how do we equip them to know right from wrong, particularly when it comes to things like sex and relationships, when we don't know what they're seeing on the Internet? On today's show, we've got an expert who has spent years talking to teenagers about all of this. And she'll give us some great advice after this quick break. This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and everyday people about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com podcast or wherever you listen. To help Heather and Ian with their 13-year-old son, Henry, we turn to Peggy Orenstein. Peggy has spent a lot of her career writing about how to help kids learn about things like sex and romantic relationships. And she had this really eye-opening experience in 2016 when she published a book named Girls and Sex.
3: As I went around the country after publishing that book, which was about the kind of contradictions that young women still faced in their intimate encounters, everywhere that I went, parents of girls and boys and boys themselves would say, what about boys? When are you going to write about boys? And the more I thought about it, the more I realized that, in fact, nobody was talking to boys. And more importantly, nobody was really listening to boys. So I started doing some interviews and then... Um, very quickly after I started that, the Me Too allegations began. And suddenly everybody was talking about sexual misconduct. So it created this imperative to reduce sexual violence. But also I thought, you know, we really have to know what's going on in their heads so that we can guide them towards better and more informed choices.
0: And what is going on in their heads? Were they aware of the Me Too stuff?
3: Um, you know yes and no. you know what I what I felt was there were two things going on at once, which which didn't surprise me because that there was often contradictions in girls' lives too, which was that on one hand they had female friends, they um, saw girls as equal in the classroom, deserving of educational and professional opportunities.
0: And what would they say about how they saw themselves or, or other boys?
3: When I would say describe the ideal guy to me, it was like they were channeling 1955. And it went oh. immediately back to um, dominance and aggression and athleticism and sex as status seeking. And the really big one, of course, was emotional suppression.
0: How, how did, what, like,
3: what did they actually say? What they would say most often was that they felt that the two emotions they were allowed were happiness and anger. So that whole bucket of emotions that boys learn around. Sadness, betrayal, frustration, um, you know, grief, anything uh, like that gets funneled into this one emotion.
0: And so here's our first rule. It is easy to model for your boys, and I know this myself as a father. It's easy to model these two emotions of happiness and anger and to leave out all the other kind of more complicated emotions. But the more we allow our kids, but both boys and girls, to see that emotions aren't binary, that they're complex. That's how we help them feel and learn to express all those nuanced feelings. I have actually, I don't think I've heard the word masculinity used without the toxic modifier in like 5 years. Like like <laughs> I I never I never hear someone say like oh, he's got some great masculinity, right? Like that masculinity is almost something that's like always paired with toxic. And in my own kid, my, my 12-year-old, masculinity for him is almost a bad word. Did you find that to be true when you were talking to to boys also? I would ask
3: boys what they liked about being a guy, and that was a lot harder for them to answer, honestly. I think that with girls, not to say that everything is okay in girl world, but um, we've given them this alternative identity Um, to traditional, conventional femininity that they can embrace and grow into and feel good about. And that hasn't happened with boys.
0: And so to do that, Peggy says, we need to figure out ways to talk with our sons about what being a boy means in good ways, rather than just about what they ought to avoid or how things can go wrong. This is especially true when it comes to things like dating or what they're seeing online about sex. You
1: know, I don't think we've ever framed it that way, um, and I'm concerned that we've mostly framed it in uh, what not to be, and yeah. rather than what opportunities are there to be something interesting and different and kind and and uh, uh, probably guilty of of framing those conversations in how how not to be.
0: Well, Peggy, when you talked to boys or their parents. And they did have those conversations in positive ways. Like, how did the conversation go? Because I think you're right. I remember when when my mom and dad talked to me about sex. They said it was something that two people do when they're in love. Mm-hmm. And when I think about the conversation I might have with my kids, they're a little bit young right now to talk about the the technicalities. But I I think you're right. A lot of it would be like you have to ask consent at every single step. Be sure you like you don't do anything that she's going to feel uncomfortable with. It's it is a lot focused on the negative and not the positive. When that conversation goes well, what does it look like?
3: I mean, ideally, we start our conversations with our children um, from birth, you know, where, where we're naming body parts correctly, where we're talking about what we're seeing about gender and the culture that, the, the, you know, we think about sex as like this siloed thing that's separate from every other aspect of, of our humanity and citizenship. But it's really not. It's, you know, it, it all connects. Also, this idea that it's a talk. um, you know, I, I, I kind of liken it to table manners, like if I said to you, all right, I want you to sit down with your child and tell them, you know, this is your fork, this is your knife, say please and thank you, ask to be excused at the end of the meal, okay, go forth and be polite, you know, I mean, that would be ridiculous. You know that you have to have tell your child to say thank you 7,000 million times during their their childhood before they do it reflexively, right? They, they don't do it on their own. Talking about all of these things can't be done in one conversation. They have to be done little tiny things that are kind of peppered throughout. Yeah. That's one really big piece of advice. And if you're in a situation as Heather and Ian are where you have two parents who are on board and you have a male father figure um, who's really willing to talk to boys, that is gold.
2: Yeah. My dad was very emotionally closed and, and I am to a certain extent as well. And so, you know, I'm trying to learn and try and figure out how not to be that way (laughs) and, and, you know, to, to do what I can to, to, to assist, but it's difficult.
3: Right. You don't have to be perfect and you don't have to know all the answers. You don't have to know all the questions. You don't have to do it right every time. Um, But just trying and just entering somewhere in the conversation and indicating a willingness to have difficult, uncomfortable conversations that you don't know how to have, what an amazing thing that is to show
0: to your child. Here's our next rule. If you want to make talking about sex or or relationships or masculinity something that feels normal to your kids, then you should have those conversations a lot until it feels kind of natural yourself. Or at least as natural as talking to our kids about their table manners. And when you speak to your kid, you don't have to know everything. They're going to learn the most if you're working through these questions together, which, at least in my house, is also kind of true of table manners. In fact, Peggy actually has a recommendation on things that you can watch together. Water. Earth. Do you know the cartoon
3: Avatar: The Last Airbender? Are you watching that in your family right now?
0: We're, my boys have watched it. I haven't watched it myself.
3: Okay, so you need to watch it with them because one of the amazing things about Avatar: Last Airbender, and I am an evangelist about this show, um, <laughs> is that it has this incredible arc with the one of the main male characters who starts out as the as the evil guy. And kind of the embodiment of toxic masculinity from his environment and other things.
2: The thing is, you know, when I was attacking you, uh, yeah, I guess I should apologize for that. But but anyway, I'm good now.
3: And I mean, I I was good his before, arc, now arc towards I being a really time. empathic man is... Remarkable, and I think something that really offers an opportunity for parents of boys right now um, to, to talk about.
2: I'll, I'll tell you our son's watching it.
3: Right? They all are. Yeah, he loves it.
2: He yeah, loves he it. loves it.
0: But how do you talk to your teenage son when he's watching something a little more hardcore? When we come back, we'll get into what your teenager is probably already seeing online, whether you know it or not. In each episode, Kitty talks to authors, historians, athletes, Nobel laureates, and everyday people about why we make irrational choices and how we can make better ones to avoid costly mistakes. Listen and subscribe at schwab.com/podcast or find it wherever you listen reboot your credit card with apple card the only credit card designed for iphone it gives you up to three percent daily cash back on every purchase plus apple card has no fees not even hidden ones apply for apple card now in the wallet app on iphone apple card issued by goldman sachs bank usa salt lake city branch subject to credit approval variable aprs for apple card range from 19.24 percent to 29.49 percent based on credit worthiness Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at AppleCard.com. So you thought raising a teenage boy was hard. What happens when it's time for him to leave the nest? Let me suggest another episode about helping your kids get ready for college or whatever else comes next, called How to Get Your Kid to Finally Grow Up, with tips from a former Stanford admissions dean. You can find that episode and all of our episodes by subscribing for free to our podcast feed. We're back with our parents, Heather and Ian, and our expert, the writer, Peggy Orenstein. And one of the hardest questions that parents face today, particularly parents of teenage boys, is how do we talk to them about online porn? This is something that, like, I've I've been struggling with with my wife as we talk about my 12-year-old, which is, um, you know, I've, I've read these things that say, look, you, your kid's going to get exposed to, to sexualized messages earlier. They're probably going to get exposed to porn. And one of the important things you should do as a dad and as parents is to say to them, what you see in porn is not real life. Like, if you don't look like that guy, that's okay. And... Most encounters with women don't, like, get to sex in 30 seconds like they do in pornography. But with my 12-year-old, like, I I don't even know if he's really seen porn. So if I have that conversation too early, I'm worried that, like, he doesn't know what I'm talking about and it's weird and it's scary for him. But if I wait too long, then it's too late. I, I
2: totally echo that. I was, that. was That was something I was yeah. going to ask.
0: <laughs> well, so often the
3: first exposure to porn is accidental. Um, it, it's not something that they're seeking It's somebody, you know, forwarding a meme or somebody turning their phone around and thinking it's funny. You know, they may be exposed to, um, highly sexualized images or graphic sexual images, um, before they're looking for them for, you know, sexual
0: gratification. Heather and Ian, let me ask you, have you guys talked to Henry about porn?
1: We yeah, we yeah. haven't. I mean, unless oh, see, I don't know yeah, everything.
2: No, I, <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah, apparently I didn't discuss this with you. Yeah, no, and it was a, a, you know, the the conversation that I had with him was, I didn't. We didn't go very deep into you know kind of the specifics of of porn, um, but it was just more you know kind of just trying to get what his understanding was of it. And this was probably he was maybe ten, maybe eleven.
3: Yeah. So you've opened the door to the conversation but then they start looking, boys between 11 and 13 tend to start seeking porn out intentionally. So if you're talking about kids the age of your children, there's a great website called amaze.org that does um, sex education for middle schoolers and they have some really good information on um, both for kids and for um, parents on how to have an age-appropriate conversation about pornography. And also, I think when you're looking at mainstream media, I remember being with my daughter when she was like 11. And I asked her if she knew what porn was. And she said, yes, I haven't seen it. And, you know, and and then we went home and we were watching some movie on Netflix, and it had a kind of generic sex scene. But it was the kind of thing that kids see a million times, which is, you know, kiss, kiss, rip off clothes, go immediately to heterosexual intercourse up against a wall or in bed, two seconds, everybody's had a simultaneous orgasm and it's over. You know, they, they are getting a terribly distorted idea. And, and one thing that I find in talking to older boys is that guys who are regular porn users actually express less satisfaction with their partnered interactions, with their own performance, and with their partner's bodies. And so we want you to have a really good sex life. But this is not going to be the way that you're going to get there.
2: I, I, I got to say, I, I, was, I was a little heartened, you know, when I said I you know, had a, a brief conversation with him about porn. You know, one of the things that I, I did discuss with him is exactly what you were saying, Peggy, was this isn't real. It's, this is not how it goes. This is not the, the sequential <laughs> elements of, of how these relationships work.
0: So here's the rule. Assume your kid has seen porn. In in fact, studies show that the average age of exposure to pornography is actually 11 years old. But you don't have to ask them about it in an accusatory way. Instead, let them know porn is common on the internet. it's, It's hard to avoid it sometimes. And it's okay to be curious and to have questions. But also tell them most media depictions of sex, including porn, are totally unrealistic and then have that conversation again and again and again to make sure it really sinks in. When you talk to to Henry about how he should treat girls, because this is something I struggle with all the time myself, is is when I'm talking to my boys, I don't wanna tell them that they should treat anyone differently, except that they should treat some people differently, right? Because they face different challenges or they, they come from different backgrounds, and so it's a complicated thing. What have those conversations been like with Henry? Have you talked to him about how he treats girls?
1: Uh, I'm trying to think, Ian. Of the girls that we know that he hangs out with, of course, you know, Maddie comes to mind. And and not only would Henry not treat Maddie any differently, this is the girl that he plays hockey and baseball with. She wouldn't stand for it. She wouldn't stand for being treated any differently. Um, But I think that has actually been important for him She's better than him at everything. Um And I think that has helped him kind of really think of of girls as friends or that they can be just just friends. It's not always that
2: transactional uh, relationship, you know, I don't think we've really had that kind of gender specific conversation. But I think what we try and do is, you know, it's like, hey, you need to treat everyone as they, you know, wish to be treated,
3: you know, Ian, you just said something that I love. So often, I think, when we think about the golden rule, um, it's, you know, treat somebody the way that you would want to be treated, right? But mm-hmm. there's what uh, some educators I know call the platinum rule going one step above. Is that other thing, like, how does that person want to be treated? How do we see that person, whether it's gender, whether it's sexual orientation, whether it's just an individual person? Um, you know, thinking about them from their perspective is an act of empathy Um, And that is going to be good for your child in so many
0: ways. And these discussions can be hard for adults to wrap their heads around, and awkward, which gets us to our next rule. Let your kids tell you how they want to have these conversations, even if that's not necessarily the way that you would choose to have it.
3: I have a friend who says that her son will only have conversations with her on sensitive topics, if she's sitting outside of his bedroom door, he's sitting inside of his bedroom door, and it's all the way closed except for like a two-inch crack, and they talk through that, you know, like so. So <laughs> you, you might have to find creative ways so that you're not sitting down, you know, looking him in the face um, and having these conversations. It might be less squirmy if you're if you're engaged in some other activity at the same time.
2: Yeah, you, ours are usually in the car, as you said. Like mm-hmm. you know, we're going to different sporting events and whatnot, and so yeah, that's the that's the time I usually have the conversations with Henry for sure.
0: Peggy, let me ask you this because you spent a lot of time talking to to kids about locker room talk, particularly talking to boys mm-hmm. about locker room talk, which has always been the stereotype of a, of a particularly sexist domain. Right. What have you found in your research?
3: Well, you know, sports culture can be character building, it can form camaraderie and, and team building and all these things, but it can also be a smokescreen for the worst kind of what you really must call at that point toxic masculinity and bro culture. And one boy I remember uh, said to me, when he was a sophomore in high school, he and a friend had uh, tried to challenge some older boys who were saying something, you know, despicable about a, a female classmate. And they got mocked. And so the next time it happened, the friend of the boy that I was talking to kept on speaking out, but, but this boy, whose name was Cole, did not. And Cole said that as he watched, he saw that other people started to like this boy less and, and kind of make fun of him and not want to be friends with him in the same way. And Michael Thompson, who's a psychologist, said, "'It's silence in the face of cruelty and misogyny where boys become men.'" And so for me, talking to boys wasn't just looking at what they did say or looking at these guys who were total jerks or, you know, whatever, but looking at what boys couldn't or wouldn't say even when they
0: wanted to or believed that they should. Heather and Ian, let me ask you, because I I imagine you, like me, we want our sons not just to be people who don't sexually harass, but people who actually stand up to, to others who are saying sexist things or talking about women in objectionable ways and i know my son he went through this curriculum at his his middle school where they they taught him don't be a bystander be an upstander and he hated it it was so cheesy but we want to raise our kids to be brave enough to stand up and say this is how we ought to behave in the world how do you do that with henry
1: that's a tough one because you're with your peers and to stand up and say something is is difficult, um, but I think we have an opportunity right now as we're all learning that it's not enough um, to be not a racist, um, but to be anti-racist. I think there's an opportunity to extend those learnings towards you know misogyny and and sexist remarks. Um, we're all kind of learning to have the tools to say. Um, gee, that doesn't sound right to me, or check your facts on that. But it's tough because peer pressure is huge. But I think we're all going through this exercise right now where we're learning how to meet that challenge.
0: Peggy, let me ask, because we've talked about, you know, porn, and we've talked about, you know, sort of this very sexualized material on the web. But of course, most of what our kids are actually seeing on the Internet is like social media. They're seeing right. these things that are are making these in jokes that that look sometimes like racist and insensitive or sexist, mm-hmm. and 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 when we confront our kids, they say like, no, 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 it doesn't actually mean that. It's just a joke. Like, how do we teach our kids to be exposed to this barrage of information that we can't control? We can't even know what they're really seeing or get the joke if we do.
3: If I could solve that one, my friend. <laughs> you know, I mean, that is that is the trick, isn't it? I think the truth is that right now all our kids are going to suddenly pop out with something in a conversation that's going to make you go, what the hell? It's really, really hard to know what your kid is looking at all the time. Um, but I, I think that we have a tendency to, as parents, think that what's going on in their online world is kind of like secondary or lesser or not really real, but it's very real to them and it has a huge impact and particularly during the pandemic when everything has moved online, they're, they're having their childhood online right now.
0: And this is our last rule. It is really easy to divide our kids' lives into two parts, online and real life. But for many of our children, that line doesn't really exist. And so if we want to talk to our kids about sex or porn or any number of hard topics, we have to talk to them where they live, which means talking about what they are seeing and doing online. Because for a lot of our kids, especially right now, that's the most important part of their social life.
1: Yeah, I I think it's helped a lot, first of all, to to realize that I'm going to have to have some hard conversations that maybe even I'm squeamish about, but it's important to have them and uh, make sure that that we take a look at that approach, that masculinity isn't just a bunch of things that you shouldn't be. There are opportunities to talk about what it's like to be a good person and a good role model and a good partner uh, and a good friend. And then maybe taking the opportunity, you know, the fact that we are all home, we have an opportunity right now to really model what that kind of healthy relationship
2: can look like yeah we we don't know everything we are going to make mistakes but just to do our you know do our best and and learn there are some areas we can improve and and get better and and do you know just do better for our kids and and do what we can
3: I, I I so I just want to express like total empathy and support because I just you know we are all as parents contending with this and we're all struggling with it and it's so new you know
0: Thank you to Heather and Ian for sharing their story with us. And thank you to Peggy Orenstein for all of her fantastic advice. Make sure to look for her books. Her most recent are Boys and Sex and Girls and Sex. And speaking of girls, we'll wrap up our back to school series next week by talking to a female high school senior who is not only navigating relationship issues, but also remote learning and trying to get into the college of her dreams all during a pandemic. It's the last installment of our special series, Cheat Sheet. Do you need to have a tough conversation with your kids, but don't know how? Or do you have another problem that needs solving? If so, we want to hear from you. You should send us a note at howto@slate.com or leave us a voicemail at 646-495-4001. And we might have you on the show. How To's executive producer is Derek John. Rachel Allen is our production assistant, and Merritt Jacob is our engineer. Our theme music is by Hannes Brown. June Thomas is the senior managing producer, and Alicia Montgomery is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Gabriel Roth is Slate's editorial director of audio. Special thanks to Rosemary Belson, Bill Carey, and Maggie Taylor. I'm Charles Duhigg. Thanks for listening.